All right, guys, if you got your Bibles this morning, Joshua, we're, we're still in the series of Joshua. We've got, uh, I think we're about halfway done, uh, but we're in Joshua 5 this morning, and we're building up to Jericho, and what, what all will happen with Jericho, we've talked about uh, Rahab, we've talked about uh, the crossing, the parting of the Jordan River, and um, I wanted to jump right into Jericho. If you're like me, uh, I love action movies. I, I know movies that I've seen, like I watched Die Hard, the Die Hard series, the other, uh, through a series of nights over the last couple of weeks. And man, you just know when John McClane is going to do something, uh, like that scene where he's in that office and they shoot out all the glass and he's got to run across the glass with bare feet. And you know that's coming and you're like, oh man. And it gets your blood pumping and, and, and you kind of just get fired up for that. And you know that in the Bible, there are these scenes where God's just going to be greatly victorious and there's going to be something incredible happen and that happens in Jericho. And so my, my desire is to jump right to Jericho, but there's something in Joshua 5 that happens that is, I don't think, often talked about and a lot of times we read it and we're like, hmm, that's neat, but it is setting the stage. It is the actual victory for what will happen in Jericho being established here. And so it, it, the, the title of the message is Holy Ground. And we sang about higher ground, and we sang about worshiping the Lord, and we prayed about the holy ground in which we experience today. But I want you to look with me um, as Joshua encounters someone unusual in the Scriptures. And we're going to look at verse 13. We're just going to be in chapter 5, verse 13 through 15 this morning. But look with me at verse 13. Now, when Joshua was by or near Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. He looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our adversaries or our enemies? Now, I want you to understand what's happening in the timeline. I try to set this up so that we can put ourselves into the story because a lot of times we think old history, cool to know, but doesn't really apply to us or impact our lives today. And what's happening here is that this event happens before the Battle of Jericho. You know, the, the walls came tumbling down. We know that, that song. And it happens before the battle at Jericho, before those walls will ever crumble before them. And it happens after this miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, which we said last week was uh, very reminiscent of the parting of the Red Sea. And God performed a, a similar miracle there. And so in between the Jordan River and Jericho, there is this man that's going to show up on the scene. And uh, it's a very mysterious, kind of unusual appearance. But there's something else happening. So we've got the Jordan River crossing uh, still taking place, and something else was happening before we would encounter this warrior-like figure, okay? Jericho's still off in the future. Jordan River's happened uh, miraculously, you know. They carried the Ark of the Covenant. The priests stopped in the middle of the, the riverbed. Uh, they were called back. Joshua called some of them back, one from each tribe to go pick up stones from the middle of the dry riverbed, and they would take those on to Gilgal. And so this event happens before we encounter this man in Joshua 5, and it's this. Those memorial stones had been taken. They went and they picked these rocks up out of the dry riverbed, and they're going to form this uh, memorial, this altar, if you will, and they're going to stack those stones up and pile those up as, as a place that they can remember the God that God worked on their behalf and performed this miracle in their midst. 
But uh, as soon as they crossed over the Jordan River, God commanded a couple of things. This new generation of Hebrews, you know, they had wandered in the wilderness, and everyone over 40 had, had died. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones to carry on the mantle. Joshua had taken over uh, as the leader of Israel, as God's servant leader amongst his people. And this new generation of Hebrews uh, did not yet have the sign of the covenant of Israel, which is circumcision. And um, circumcision in, uh, in friendly language is the cutting away of the old. It's symbolic of that. And so a circumcision of the heart for us today would mean that the old was cut away and that God had made something new in us. And circumcision, the physical act, you guys know what that is. But, and if you don't, kids, ask your parents. Uh, they can explain that later. Um, I'm not going to talk about it, okay? <laughs> but before the conquest could take place... God commanded that the male sons of Israel be circumcised. And you can't imagine hundreds of thousands of people, man. This is a huge thing. There's a lot of people that are going to be in the sickbed, and men are weenies anyway. You know, they're wimps. So it, it, you, got, you got guys hobbled up for a while. But they've got to get this sign of the covenant with God. Now, following the circumcision of the Jewish people, that when, when everybody was healed up, they were going to partake in the Passover feast. And this is, this is all kind of almost in reverse order of the Red Sea. You see, um, when Israel was escaping Egypt, they call that the exodus of Egypt, and we read it in the book of Exodus, they were escaping from enemies. The Passover was really, if you will, invented there. And the last of the plagues, there was going to be an angel of the Lord, this death angel, that was going to pass over all the homes in Egypt. The Israelites, the Egyptians, whomever was there. Uh, the people were told that if you will take a, a spotless and an unblemished lamb, don't go get your junk lamb, don't go get the one over there, you know, that uh, he's, he's an Arkansas lamb, you know, he's inbred, he's got buck teeth and he's got things wrong with him. But take your good one, all right? Give God your best. And so they take this lamb, and they would sacrifice this lamb, and they would take, uh, I believe it was a hyssop branch, and uh, whatever it was, they would take it, and they would apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their home. And you're thinking, man, this is graphic and kind of nasty sounding, but it was because blood sacrifice was required for the remission of sins. It's why when we jump to the New Testament, God's only begotten son, Jesus, had to die. There was a shedding of blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so, you, you, you know, the angel of the Lord passes over the homes of those who have, by faith, applied the blood of the lamb to their home, to their families, in essence. But those who said, this is bunk, this is crazy, uh, I'm not doing that. First of all, I'm not going to waste a good lamb. I don't believe this junk anyway. And you would think, okay, you've seen all of these plagues happen. You're not going to believe God by now. Well, their hearts were so hardened, nothing would have changed their mind. But the death of the firstborn happened as that angel passed over. He passed over and spared every home that had the blood applied. But those homes that didn't, the firstborn was killed. And there was great weeping and gnashing of teeth all throughout the land of Egypt. 
And the Passover began thus, as they would take unleavened bread, bread that didn't even have time to rise. There would be no yeast in that bread. They would take and eat the bitter herbs, and they would partake as people who were sojourners who were following God. But it was a remembrance meal set up in place so that the people would always take it in remembrance of the Lord, much like we do the Lord's Supper today. We take it in remembrance of Him. We take it looking forward to the day when we'll sit down at the Lord's table with Him. And so the Passover is taking place anew, the Passover feast. Jordan River crossing, circumcision, Passover is being resumed, and these things are all callbacks to the promises that God has made centuries before, centuries before to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these promises that the people haven't experienced in a long time. And in some ways, they may have think, be thinking, man, God's abandoned us. You know, I mean, we lost all of our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles. So many people died in the wilderness wanderings. We're supposed to take the promised land. Now our great leader is gone. Joshua's taking his place. Things are changing. It's unusual. Where is God in all of this? Well, God's showing up. He showed up in the Jordan River. He tells them, I want to see the sign of the covenant upon you. I want you to take the Passover to remember what I did in Egypt because we're fixing to do the same thing in Jericho. And so all of this is happening. God's making these events afresh in the people's minds. And we, we put this all together and we get this. At the first Passover in Egypt, the angel of the Lord passed over as God's avenger of the pagans. You know, the, the first Avengers weren't Captain America and, and uh, whoever else they were. You know, uh, uh, my kids have all of those costumes. You might have seen, uh, they mix up the costumes. They'll carry around a Captain America shield and a Hulk mask and Thor's cape and stuff. And we think, oh, those are the Avengers. The first Avenger wasn't a superhero made by uh, a man written in a comic book. The first Avenger was God's angel that passed over. And God was telling his people, I'm going to do the same thing for you. And, and, and you won't have to do anything because I'm going to show everyone in this nation that you're about to conquer, I'm going to show my people that I, the Lord God, am the one who's in control and in charge. And so uh, there's avenging happening here. Why? Why would God avenge somebody? Well, people who discredit, blaspheme, the name of God, people who worship false gods, people who go back to the Ten Commandments, people who take the Lord's name in vain and who squander the gifts of God and and basically uh, shout that God doesn't exist and rub his name in the dirt, God will avenge himself. This generation today that claims that there is no God or they make fun of God or they make him effeminate, they take the words of God and they they change even the, the gender of the words. They change and take from the scriptures. They cut them up. God will avenge his holiness. He's offering grace so that everybody can be forgiven of that. But if you refuse grace and you refuse Jesus, judgment awaits. Judgment was coming upon these pagan people of whom inhabited the land of the Israelites that God had given them long ago. And so there's a definite parallel to notice uh, between the Red Sea and Egypt, and Jordan, and Jericho. And we're about to learn the story of the captain of the Lord of hosts. Now, I put on the screen here that we all need our memories refreshed from time to time, and it's because we're such a forgetful people. Uh, If you were here this last week of revival, um, Dale 
did a great job of preaching to us. But he could come this Sunday night and this week and preach the exact same messages. He could pull his notes out and preach them again, and we would need them this week, just like we needed them last week. And it's because we are such a forgetful people. We quickly forget God's blessing, sometimes the same day. God will answer a prayer for us that morning, and by the end of the day, we're so down on God because he didn't do these other things. And yet we forget, and we have to be reminded about how good God is. He had avenged his people before, and he was going to do it again. That was his promise, and his promises still stand. But we need constant reminders of his faithfulness. You'll recall, too, that during this wilderness experience, God had miraculously— you think about when those people were, were hungry and thirsty. God provided manna. Manna means what is it, okay? Uh, because it came down from heaven, and people were like, what is this stuff? You know, but it was a superfood. Uh, it was something that God provided in the form of whatever they were, these little flakes, or, or, or you know, some people say, well, those are frosted flakes, you know. Uh, maybe, you know. Um, but— it came down, but God continuously nourished his people when there was nothing in the wilderness. He even provided for them meat to eat as well from the pheasant and quail that came that he provided. But as soon as they crossed into the promised land, you need to remember this, that the manna ceased. It came to an abrupt halt. God provided it for them while they were helpless. And now he's bringing them into the place that is flowing with milk and honey, and that provision is no longer necessary. So the celebration of the Passover, the circumcision, the crossing of the Jordan River, um, they all call attention to God fulfilling his promises that he had promised centuries earlier. And there was also another promise, the land the promised land, which was going to be theirs. And so Israel's on a religious high right now. It's sort of like um, you're out on the playground playing basketball. And uh, it's me and Brother Ben, and uh, we got Gary Phillips on our team, and Johnny's on our team, and Leroy's on our team. And, man, we're the Fab Five, you know? I mean. But Leroy goes down with a bad hamstring, and we're down to four people. And we're playing this team that's really good, all right? They're like the Kentucky Wildcats. And all of a sudden, this black Ferrari pulls up, and Michael Jordan gets out. And he says, hey, can I play? And we're like, yeah, we need an extra. And we're like, man, Michael Jordan's on our team. This is done, you know? This is Israel right now. They're sitting there thinking, good night. God has us. There's no way we can lose. And so they're on this spiritual high, this mountaintop experience, because they're fixing to march, and they know that God's doing all these things that he promised, and all the fulfillment of prophecy is falling into place, and they're just, man, they're fired up. The adrenaline's flowing. They're great right now. And so this is the fulfillment of history. God's promise, it's finally at hand. It's this time of refreshment and an experience of covenant renewal for the people. They've been reminded in no uncertain terms that God was going before them. And as they're preparing for battle, this warrior appears whose identity is unknown to Joshua. You look back at verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho... He lifted up his eyes. I, I can picture Joshua kind of standing against a, a rock or something, and he's, he's got the best map that he possibly has of the terrain and of what the city looks like and what fortifications might be. And he's sitting there, and pencil in hand, and he's like, man, 
you know, these are the things we need to do. I need to get these people organized. We need to keep the ark over here. You know, and he's writing his plans down, and he looks up. And what does he see? He beholds a man who stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now, y'all seen Rocky IV? You know Dolph Lundgren in Rocky IV, Drago? I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. You probably do, the big Russian guy. Well, I'm imagining, maybe not, most Jews of the day were 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and that, that, that's not that tall, okay? It's like here. But Drago standing there in the way, and the dude's got his sword out and drawn in his hand. Some big guy, some formidable opponent is blocking the way for, for Joshua, to, whether it was to get out of his tent or to walk out or whatever. There's somebody standing in the way. It's going to get your attention. And so uh, I think you would probably be like Joshua and assess the situation. This is a hostile moment. A- at least there's some confrontation fixing to happen. This guy appears out of nowhere, and there he is. And Joshua's probably going through this catalog of his mind. You know, his military uh, is made up of a bunch of ragtag backwoods militia. I mean, nobody in his military is really a professionally trained fighter. And he sees this guy, and he's like, this isn't one of my guys, man. I don't know where this guy's from. I've never, I've never fought him on the field of battle. I, I don't remember ever seeing him. Who is this? And so verse, th- verse 13 continues, as this new guy's being sized up, Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, was this guy going to be a friend or a foe? Was he going to be a comrade or a competitor? And the response is found in the first part of verse 14. Neither. What do you do with that, man? Um, It's very evasive. Joshua didn't stutter. It really had to be one or the other. I mean, you're either for us or you're against us. But the answer, no, is not what I'm looking for. I think the commander or the captain of the Lord's army when he said, I have now come as commander of the Lord's army, was saying this. And check this out. You're missing, Joshua, you're missing the bigger picture. You're asking the wrong question. Now stop for a second. Don't, don't even read further. How many times when you're facing a Goliath in your life, when there's a Jericho wall in front of you, when there's an unknown, when there's something fearful and big and dangerous, when you have an adversary that you don't feel like you can beat, when there's struggles in your life, how often do you get to this place and you say, God, help me to go out and win today. God, help me to go out and fight them. God, help me to be victorious. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers. But sometimes God's going to do what he did with Joshua, and he's going to put us in our place and show us who's actually the one doing the fighting and being victorious. And so we ask the wrong questions sometimes of God because we're looking for the wrong answers. But this, this commander is saying, it's not a question of whether I've come to fight for you or to fight for your enemies. I didn't come here to fight for you. I came here to take charge. It's not that I'm going to fight for you, Joshua, but you are going to fight for me. In other words, this angel of the ho- Lord of hosts, all of heaven's armies, the one who's in command of them all, is telling Joshua, I'm enlisting you. Joshua, it's not about your might. It's not about your, your brilliant, strategic military mind. It's not about the size of the force that's behind you. 
It's about me. And you need to follow me. And man, what a humbling moment for a person who's usually in charge and who leads. And Joshua has no other choice than to follow. I think Joshua instantly realized that he's now face-to-face with someone who's not just an ordinary or even an extraordinary human warrior. He's dealing with one who was sent by God from heaven. And this phrase, (coughs) I don't know what your translation says, maybe it says commander of the army of the Lord or captain of the Lord of hosts. It has a couple of different references in Scripture. For one, at the birth of Christ, uh, behold, there was with the angel a heavenly host, one that filled up the skies, filled up the heavens. Um, That word host is a synonym. It doesn't just mean a bunch of people. It's not just a a throng or a congregation or a, a large grouping of people. It's actually synonymous throughout Scripture with the term army. And this matters to us, and we're getting to that. But we're told throughout Scripture that God is attended in His presence in heaven around his throne, moment by moment, by myriads of angels who make up what we call the heavenly host. And it's not just a heavenly throng, it's a heavenly army. That spiritual army is always at the beckon command of their commander-in-chief, who is God himself. Any angel can be dispatched at any time. When there's a need that arises from one of God's people, or God foresees a problem that's coming into our lives, he will immediately discharge one of his best. You know, David had his mighty men. Well, God has his mighty angels. And this angel army is for God and therefore for his children. It reminds me of an episode. Uh, I just want to illustrate this real quick. That happened in 2 Kings 6. Uh, You remember Elisha the prophet. There was Elijah and then Elisha. That was his... his, uh, follower, his predecessor that would come along after the scene. And this happens in 2 Kings 6 in a little bitty town called Dothan. I grew up in Hackett, Arkansas. I don't know if you've ever been to Hackett, but if you blink, you're going to miss Hackett, okay? There's nothing there. Um, Dothan is a tiny little bitty town, really significant for not a whole lot other than the fact that it was Elisha's home. And so, In this story, there's the king of Aram, and he's taking his mighty forces, and he's setting out to conquer Israel. Now, uh, a a big army, um, powerful king, he's got uh, pagan comrades all around, and they want to blot out Israel. And so, the king of Aram and his forces come, and they want to ambush Elisha the prophet, because Elisha what he's basically doing is he's praying to God, and God keeps revealing to him the battle plans of the enemy. He has their next move provided by God, and Elisha takes it. You talk about a strategic advantage in battle. Elisha takes what he knows they're going to do, where they're going to place their forces, where they're going to come in from, what time of day they're going to come in, and he takes that to Israel, and he takes it to the generals and and the kings, and he says, this is what they're going to do. And every time, Aram keeps getting beaten. They keep getting beaten back, and it's humiliating and frustrating to the king. And so the king of Aram here in 2 Kings 6, he he tells his people, listen, we're not going to worry about Israel right now. It'll take care of itself. We're going to focus all of our forces, I mean thousands and thousands and thousands of people on this one man. We're going to Dothan, There's a guy who lives there that's a prophet of Israel. 
We're going to surround his house, and we're going to obliterate him. Once we get rid of him, Israel won't be any problem. That's the idea and the thinking of the king of Aram. And so the enemy king goes down, and he's doing all of this to get rid of one man. I want to tell you this, guys. Elisha was a man just like we were. He was, uh, he was blessed with incredible prophetic ability. He was anointed by God, but he was still a man like we were. And I love the thought of this, that one person with the Lord is a multitude. Man, you're more than your enemies. I think sometimes we think the person at work or the IRS or uh, maybe uh, there's some, you know, that we come in contact with and think child protective services are their enemy or maybe your ex is your enemy or maybe the bank is your enemy or your boss is your enemy or uh, the person that you have in your life that's constantly antagonizing you as your enemy. And a lot of times I think we think from a human perspective, I'll never be able to overcome them. I can't beat them. I can't do that. It's too much for me. But if you remember, Elisha had a servant boy. They were alone in a tiny little house in a tiny little town called Dothan and what God would do. Listen to this. 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 17. The king sent out his horses, his chariots, his archers, and his warriors. He sends out a full army to this little village of Dothan by night to surround the city. The orders are to take no man prisoner, kill them all. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, and he looks out the front door. And he has a, a moment. And he runs to the back door, and he looks out. He runs out, looks out each side window. And he goes to Elisha, and this is what Scripture says. In his panic, he wakes Elisha up. Oh, my master, what are we to do? Elisha, man, I haven't even had my coffee yet. What are you bothering me with? That's not what Elisha says. Elisha's immediate reaction. He doesn't know who's outside. He doesn't care about who's outside. That's not his problem. He says, do not be afraid. That's what he tells the servant. He says, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And immediately Elisha prays, Oh Lord, he, I love this, he didn't pray that God would drop a, a, a nuclear bomb on Aram, the Aramenians. Instead he says, Oh Lord, please open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And there's this beautiful picture that God had dispatched his host of warrior angels. And they were far outnumbering anybody from Aram. And Elisha knew this was coming. And he prayed that the young man that was with him, that his eyes, because we have physical eyes. You know, that's why we're, we're commanded in Scripture, don't walk by sight, but walk by faith. Because in sight, we see, man, there's thorns and thistles. Man, that's dark. Man, that's scary. Man, there are too many. Man, that's dangerous. But by faith, we overlook all of that stuff. It's kind of like if you had a movie screen and you just collapsed all of the scary stuff. And you brought in and queued up the lights. And you could see. And everything was a clear path and there were no obstacles. The Lord opened this man's eyes and he no longer even viewed the chariots of Aram as a threat. 
because he saw what heaven had placed on the scene. My friends, I don't think I could do a very good job of communicating this with you this morning, but the world that we live in today looks pretty messed up. Things seem pretty dismal. Governments and kings across the world seem to be messing everything up. Mandates and rules and laws seem to be interfering with our freedoms. We look at it and we think, when's this going to get better? How come it's so bad? And yet, if we would have Elisha pray for us, God, open his eyes. Open her eyes. Can you imagine what the God of the universe has positioned all around his adversary? It's your victory. I promise you that. It's your hope. But we can't just walk by sight. That passage that I shared in 2 Kings 6, um, it talks a lot about the invisible spiritual realm. And most of the time, human eyes, especially lost people's eyes, do not see that. We're not really privy all the time to this multitude of the heavenly host that's all around us, this army of ministering spirits under the command of Almighty God who are prepared at every moment to minister to God's people in our times of crises. We wonder how we can pray and something gets fixed. And it's because God is answering our prayers. But sometimes we wonder why God didn't answer our prayers, and it's because it's not his timing or his will. And yet we come back to this idea of prayer. It's so big and so powerful. So let's come to this, verse 14. What does Joshua do with this mighty warrior? Then Joshua fell face down in reverence and asked him, What does my Lord have to say to his servant? Joshua falls down in the dirt as low as he can go. He worships this one, he calls him Lord. He refers to himself as the servant of his Lord. Verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army replied, he does, listen, he doesn't do what every angel that we've come in contact with in Scripture does when somebody encounters them. So many times an angel would appear and people would fall down as dead. They would freeze, they would fall on their faces, and they would begin worshiping the angel. And the angel in every instance always says, stop. Stand up. The only one that you owe worship to is the Lord your God. And so angels always intercede and say, don't worship me. That's wrong. It happened over and over in Scripture, but this one, he's different. He doesn't tell Joshua, stop. He allows Joshua to worship him. There's something different about this one. And so the commander of the Lord's army replies, Take off your sandals, Joshua, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, I know there's debate. We won't go through this a lot, but just real quickly about who this commander of the Lord of hosts is. And a lot of people would say that this is the archangel Gabriel. You know, the archangels, the only ones that we have the name of that I'm aware of, and I'm sure I'll be corrected if I get this wrong. Johnny, okay, you can tell me, all right? Uh, But we have the Archangel Gabriel, we have the Archangel Michael, and then we had the Archangel Lucifer, who fell and became Satan. 
I don't know the names, do you, of any other angels in Scripture? But Kevin, you know any other names, man? Like, I, I can't think of any. But I think we know the name of this one, and I don't think he's just an angel. I believe this, and you can see on the screen this word, and I'm sure you've heard this word. I believe this to be a Christophany. A Christophany is an Old Testament, before the incarnation, before Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem, he was still Jesus, the Son of God. He was still God's Son. He was still part of the Trinity. He was in existence before time began. He was in existence in Genesis chapter 1. He was always in existence, but his incarnation brought him to us as the answered Messiah. He was the, the Son of God, the Son of Man that came to us in the form of Jesus Christ. That happens in the New Testament. But Jesus wasn't a New Testament invention. I think you know that. The Holy Spirit wasn't a New Testament invention. He didn't just arrive all of a sudden and come out of thin air at the day of Pentecost. The Trinity has always existed. And so a Christophany is when in the Old Testament the presence of Jesus Christ appears. And there's precedent for this. In Isaiah 6, um, Isaiah saw the Lord, beheld the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. In Genesis 14, Abraham, or he's Abram at the time, he, he comes back from this great victory. And you remember there's this mighty king called Chedorlaomer. I don't know if that's how you say his name, but I like to say it that way, okay? Chedorlaomer. And he, he and man, Abram defeats this guy. And all of his allied kings... And he's coming back with the spoils of war, and he encounters the priest of God Most High, whose name is Melchizedek. There's an argument and debate on whether Melchizedek was actually uh, Christophany, Jesus, who appeared in the Old Testament. Jesus, our great high priest, performed, uh, appeared in the form of the priest of God Most High. Well, same thing here. But one of the greatest indicators, I think, that this is a Christophany is Joshua's response of worship. Joshua worships the one who speaks to him here. Another clue is the words of the messenger. They're very reminiscent of the encounter that Moses had in the Midianite wilderness with God, where he encounters the burning bush, and what does God say? Remove your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. This is just like that, man. Something's happening here. The, the angel, the Lord of hosts, says, take off your sandals. For the place you are is holy. What makes a place holy? Listen, guys, this building was built and designed specifically so that we could assemble and worship. But throughout the week, this building gets vacuumed, it gets cleaned, it gets pledge sprayed in it. Uh, there's groups that come in, BSF, the women's study. Um, I mean, this building has a lot of beauty and a lot of value, but this building itself isn't necessarily holy because this building isn't the church when God takes his presence and where does his presence where does his spirit abide today in believers and when his believers come together in the name of God the presence of God is there and that place is holy you may or may not know it this morning but right here and right now the presence of God dwells and this is a holy place. 
where God's presence is, is holy. Now, if we lived that way, if we considered the fact that God is always with us, our lives would look and, and sound and feel much different. But this is definitely a holy place. Whether this was an angel or whether it was a pre-incarnate manif- manifestation of Jesus, either way, Joshua is in the presence of God. It's a moment that is holy. The takeaway here is that God mobilizes heaven and earth. Get this. Your God, your Father, your Abba, that God who loves you more than anything, so much so that he would send his only begotten Son for you. That God will mobilize heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes for his people. I don't want you to miss that this morning because a lot of us forget this. Remember I said at the beginning how often we have to be reminded, how often God has to come back and and tell his people, man, this is Passover. Man, I performed this miracle. I want this altar set up. An angel appears and tells them that he's going to go before them, going to go with them. And all those things were reminders, and it brought a spiritual high to the people of God. Well, guys, for us today, sometimes we need to be reminded at the heavy cost that was paid to purchase your salvation, to forgive you of your sin, to make you right with the Lord, to give you peace, to propose for you all of eternity. Think about that. All of the junk, all of the trash thoughts, all of the the enmity, all of the sickness, all of the gossip, all of the lies, all of the hatred, the anger, the bitterness. For some, maybe it was murder. For some, it was adultery. For some, it was shame of some sort. Maybe someone had an abortion. Maybe we had uh, an adulterous relationship before marriage or during marriage. Guys, the, 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 the depth of it, as we place depth, doesn't matter. Sin is sin. And whatever it is, your sins, which were many and were scarlet, he has come and through faith made them as white as snow. And if that's not a miracle that you can thank God for, you really need to seek the true living God. And so this God, he moves heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes for you. In Hebrews 13, 2, there's a scripture there that talks a lot about um, beware how you treat people because many have entertained angels unaware. Have you ever done that, do you think? I mean, you don't know. You won't know until the other side of heaven, but... Do you think you've ever been in the presence of someone that kind of appeared in a moment and did something for you that you couldn't explain and that you could never find them again? Have you ever experienced anything like that? And I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to hand out rattlesnakes in a minute. You can be honest, all right? I mean, some people are like, man, that's too charismatic crazy for me. I have. The crazy thing about this small event that happened in Joshua 5 is that Joshua wasn't encountering an angel unaware. I believe that he was encountering his Messiah. And if there is not great hope in the fact that that one is about to avenge his people and to give them victory in Jericho and as they pursue the rest of the promised land, I don't know what would give us strength and encouragement and hope. But that same one, my friends, 
He has come here. He dwells within you. And he has promised to go before you. He says, oh, you'll have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome this world. And so the message today is really to encourage you. What happened on that day, on the outskirts of Jericho, is the host of heaven became visible in this one who spoke to Joshua. He spoke to Joshua to encourage him and remind him that God himself had mobilized the armies of heaven to go before him in the promised land. And my friends, when you step up out of these pews this morning and you walk out into this world today, that same God says, I'm enlisting you. I'm going before you. I'm going to accomplish my redemptive purposes and plans for you. I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give you strength in your weakness. I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to hold you up. I'm going to honor my name and protect you. And I'm going out with you into the world this week. And guys, that should give you great encouragement and strength as we do that. It should also give you encouragement to tell other people about him. And you might say, well, they'll think I'm crazy, or they'll think I'm a holy roller, or I'm a nuts, or, or whatever. Man, they think that anyway, all right? Tell them about Jesus, because they have no other hope of eternal life than through Jesus. And God may be specifically using you to go to them and share his plan with them. Share your testimony Pray with them. Do something. But your God is going before you as you do that. Would you pray with me? Lord, the old hymn goes that I am standing on holy ground. And I know that there are angels all around. Well, Lord, I know that if you opened up our eyes like you opened up the eyes of Elisha's servant this morning, that as we walked around from day to day in our normal circumstances, we'd see a great clash of evil and good, of that which is damned and that which is holy, of that which is light and that which is darkness. And Lord, we don't see it, and so often we just ignore it. We pretend that it doesn't exist but, Lord, I pray that you'd remind us that we're in the middle of a very heavy onslaught of spiritual battle. The enemy cannot take our salvation. We know that. We are sealed unto the day of redemption by your Holy Spirit if we have trusted Jesus as Savior. But, boy, he'll try to wreck and ruin our lives, God. He'll whisper lies to us. He'll discredit us. He'll break us down, hurt our minds. He'll put us out of jobs. He'll do things to and against us, Lord God, that hurt us. He's trying to divert our eyes from you, oh God. He's trying to break down our testimony and our witness so that we don't glorify you and speak of you and share you. Lord, as we go out this week, day by day, I promise, Lord God, that you are real. We promise, we uphold the promise that you are real. That we might live like you're real. That we might live like there is literally one with his sword drawn in his hand who's walking out in front of us wherever we go. And that one isn't just a great warrior. He is Christ himself. Lord, the spiritual army that surrounds us the chariots of fire on the hills. Lord, I wish we could see that just once in our lives so that we'd be so encouraged and we would live in victory.
But until that day, God, I pray that you strengthen our faith so that we walk out and we live like people of God. Not people that are cowards, not doormats, not people with weak spines, not wimps, Lord God, but that we stand up. We're going to have bad days and we know it. We're going to have bad things happen to us and we know it, but that our strength and our resolve would be made firm in you, that you would empower us, Lord God, no matter what, to go out and to claim the victory, to share the gospel, to see lives saved, souls saved, people aware that they can be forgiven of their sins and embolden us, Lord. Lord, we pray all of this in the precious and the mighty name of Jesus, God. And we thank you for the promise and the goodness that you provide. In Jesus' precious name, amen.